Elizabeth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KG News Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Stephanie Seneff about her recent book, which reveals the plethora of toxicities of the herbicide glyphosate, better known as Roundup. But first, a look at some of the recent news in science. ago, I interviewed Duke University professor Herman Ponser about his radical findings showing that Kenyan hunter-gatherers had the same metabolic energy requirements as more sedentary industrialized societies. Recently, he and a large team of collaborators published another eye-opening study on metabolism. Metabolic research is expensive, and so most studies enroll few participants. But 80 co-authors on this study combined data that numerous labs collected over 40 years giving them enough information to look at questions about how metabolism changes over a lifetime. These researchers assessed metabolic rates with a method called double-labeled water, the gold standard for metabolic research. It figures the exact number of calories burned by measuring how much carbon dioxide a person exhales over the course of a day. The scientists also had heights, weights, and percent body fat on each subject, allowing calculation of metabolic rates. A smaller person will burn fewer calories than a bigger person, of course, but correcting for size and percent fat, the research question was, how do metabolic rates differ between people? The big finding, drumroll, was that metabolism differs across four distinct stages of life. There's infancy up until age one when calorie burning is at its peak, accelerating until it is 50% above the adult rate. Then from age 1 to about age 20, metabolism gradually slows by about 3% a year. From age 20 to 60, it holds steady. And after age 60, it declines about 0.7% a year. Once the researchers controlled for body size and the amount of muscle people have, they also found no differences between men and women. Of course, individuals vary as much as 25% above or below average for their age, but these outliers didn't change the age-specific pattern. These findings surprised the researchers who had expected the metabolism of adults to start slowing when they were in their 40s, or for women with the onset of menopause. The metabolic decline starts around age 60 and results in a 20% decline in metabolic rate by age 95. Amazingly, the energy requirements of the heart, liver, kidney, and brain account for 65% of your resting metabolic rate, although these organs constitute only 5% of body weight. A slower metabolism after age 60 may mean that crucial organs are functioning less well as we age. It might be one reason that chronic diseases tend to occur most often in older people. Bottom line, no matter how healthy we are, we can't beat the metabolic clock. This research was published last week in the journal Science, and I'll link to it in the show notes. So 
Earlier this month, I spoke with MIT research scientist Stephanie Seneff about her book, Toxic Legacy. Dr. Seneff takes us on a fast-paced tour of the large range of toxicities produced by glyphosate. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, the most commonly used weed killer in the world. Nearly 300 million pounds of glyphosate-based herbicide are sprayed on farms and our food every year. Although the herbicide is claimed to be safe for humans, animals, and the environment, Seneff summarizes research showing otherwise. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, and I'm delighted to talk to you today about your book, Toxic Legacy, which is about the chemical glyphosate, probably better known to listeners as Roundup, because I learned so much about this chemical and its effects on humans and ecosystems. So we can just launch right into talking about Roundup in its kind of scary story. Okay. Uh, yeah, Roundup, of course, is used extensively. People are familiar with it uh, as a way to control dandelions and control uh, weeds growing in the cracks in their, in their lawn. Very convenient. Kills all plants, except for those that have been engineered to resist it. What people don't realize is it's also used very extensively in agriculture. And especially in America, we use more than any other country per person. 20% of the total glyphosate consumed is in our country. It's the most used herbicide on the planet. And, you know, it's like 10 billion uh, kilograms uh, total over the history of the product. Uh, one pound for every person is used in this country every year. I mean, just to get a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Uh, it's been considered to be perfectly safe for humans, and that's why it's been so popular. Uh, but cracks are starting to fall, to occur in that, in that hypothesis. And what I did in my book was I showed that there are very, very many studies coming out, especially recently, that are showing you know, insidious cumulative toxic effects of glyphosate um, that you don't notice right away. So it's much harder to see that it's happening. And I believe that it, it has been a major player in many, many diseases that are going up dramatically in modern times, like um, autism in particular, which is the one I was most focused on, but also Alzheimer's and gut problems, inflammatory gut, leaky gut, uh, liver disease, kidney disease, pancreatic cancer. There's a long list of um, diseases that are going up dramatically exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. And people say, well, correlation doesn't mean causation, but I would say back, if it's not glyphosate, what is it? And in the book, I explain the, the really insidious, unique toxic mechanism that glyphosate has that is unique to that chemical. They, yeah, they let's just ahead. jump into that because, you know, when I first um, was, was introduced to glyphosate decades ago now, uh, you know, all I knew about it was, as you illustrate in the book, that it interferes with an enzyme in plants that we humans or other animals don't have. And so I thought, oh yeah, it's probably pretty um, reasonable to use this insecticide, or sorry, this um, herbicide. But as you point out, there's, there's several main mechanisms by which it can affect animals. And I think if we you know, have those kind of silos to think about before we start talking, then you can use those as illustrations of these disease mechanisms. So right. um, first off, um, it can pretend to be uh, a very simple amino acid, one that is used in synthesis of proteins. So glyphosate, if it gets into our bodies, can mess up with our protein synthesis. And then right. the second way is because um, the chemical name for Roundup is glyphosate, meaning that it has a phosphate group on. And phosphates are critical for our metabolic pathways. And glyphosate also can sneak in pretending to be a phosphate and screw with our metabolism. So um, yeah, let's just talk about some of the diseases that can be explained or implicated by these mechanisms. 
And just to clear up a little bit, glyphosate, not glyphosate. Oh, Phosate is not actually phosphate, it's phosphonate. So it's a little bit, of, the chemistry is a little bit confusing, but you're right. It has a phosphorus. It has something that's very much like phosphate. And it's, um, and I suspect that that is messing up the phosphate system, which is super, super important to our, um, to our metabolism. And I have a whole chapter on how glyphosate disrupts phosphate, but interestingly enough, it does it mostly, I think, through uh, substituting for glycine. So it, it, um, it messes up the synthesis of the proteins and certain proteins, and I identify sort of a glyphosate susceptibility motif in the proteins that characterizes what I think is proteins that are susceptible to glyphosate. And I sort of tie together all the puzzle pieces. It's like a giant puzzle metabolism is. And then the context of, in the context of glyphosate exposure, it's quite exciting to someone who likes puzzles. This is like the mother of all puzzles. And I had a, a lot of fun reading the research literature, digging out the proteins that could be predicted to be affected, finding that they are affected, predicting what Jesus, diseases that would cause, showing those diseases are going up in step with glyphosate. You sort of connect all those dots and it becomes a very compelling story. And the critical thing I think is this substituting for a glycine in protein synthesis. And I think that's the way that it disrupts the enzyme in this, in this pathway, the EPSP synthase that you mentioned, which is present in all plants present in many microbes, including many very important microbes in our gut. And that is the first place where glyphosate really starts messing us up. And, and people have become aware that the gut microbes are so important for our health and they're so messed up right now. And there's lots of papers showing up, exponential growth of the number of papers on the gut microbiome these days. We used to not pay any attention to it because it was working perfectly fine. Now the glyphosate is messing up our microbes. We're seeing all kinds of gut problems. And then we're finding that gut problems lead to brain problems, lead to rheumatoid arthritis. There's all kinds of connectivity, including of course, autism. Many of the autistic kids suffer from gut problems. And that's where the disease is starting often in the gut for all these different conditions. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I was struck by is there's, as you said, there's a lot of really insidious correlations, you know, sort of smoking guns pointing towards the um, the chemical, but there seems to be kind of a dearth of really um, tightly designed experimental evidence. And clearly that would be really difficult, if not impossible to do in humans, other than epidemiological studies. But can you tell us there about a few, there were some really interesting animal studies, but then there was also the really interesting um, cell culture study that you talked about using breast cancer cells and how yes. your interpretation was very different than the scientists who conducted that. Yes, that study is very critical. And it, it, its title is glyphosate, something like glyphosate does not substitute for glycine in proteins, something like that, very much you know, negative result. When you read the paper, you think, oh my God, they actually showed that it does. It was quite a fascinating paper. And the paper has this wonderful figure with sort of, I think it's nine boxes in it. And each box has in very tiny print, the sequence of uh, amino acids that were in the place where they found glyphosate. In the, in the protein. So they actually had these breast cancer cells. They've been maintained in culture for decades. They've probably been exposed to glyphosate all those decades because they're feeding them uh, foods that would likely be contaminated with glyphosate. They've probably incorporated glyphosate into many of their proteins already at the get-go. They exposed one group of cells to glyphosate, probably in a formulation that wasn't necessarily taken up by the cells because you have to do it in a certain way to get the cells to take it up. Monsanto knows you can rig the experiment so that the cells don't take it up. So they gave glyphosate to one group of cells and not to the other. And they had a very elegant experiment to, uh, designed to, to detect a heavy uh, protein sequence. It was too heavy and too heavy exactly by the amount you would expect if it had glyphosate instead of glycine. So a very nice, elegant experiment. I was so excited because I didn't know that technology existed. And I would love to see somebody else repeat that experiment, you know, 
on, on various samples from human uh, tissues it, for people who have specific diseases. It would be great to see someone else repeat that experiment and find, uh, find out which proteins, because they identified nine different human proteins where they found a match. And, um, and they had another thing they were looking for and they didn't find any. So it sort of showed that the other thing they were looking for didn't happen. It was some other modification they thought might happen, didn't seem to happen at all. But this, uh, these matches identified the exact proteins and, um, and they said, well, you know, it happened the same amount. It wasn't statistically different between the amount that occurred in the treated group versus the untreated group. And therefore all the, uh, all the evidence is, is, is basically false alarm. Their argument was everything was false alarm even though the other thing they were looking for had no false alarm. So it's quite suspicious. And in fact, those sequences were beautiful. And I showed in my appendix, I looked them up, I found out which proteins they, many of them had what I call my glyphosate susceptibility motif at the place where the glyphosate had appeared to substitute for glycine. So I think that paper is actually the strongest thing we have uh, to show that it is happening. There's a lot of controversy around that idea, of course. And if it is happening, it's game over for glyphosate because that is so, so devastating to think about the consequences of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so I have, I have two questions for you. Um, first of all, I love to ask people to speculate. So, you know, if you could design the experiment that would show definitively that glyphosate was actually substituting for glycine in human proteins, how would you do that? Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing that they did, which is this sort of, um, and, and it's, a, it's a fancy technique in biology uh, that I wasn't aware of that allows you to um, to actually essentially have discover the weight of peptide sequences and you know exactly what the weight should be. So when the weight is too heavy, uh, you know something in there has been modified in some way. And, and these proteins, these amino acids are all modified in various ways in the course of their of their of the life of the protein. So I mean, I would like to see it done, uh, for example, on tissue samples, breast cancer tissue samples, to see if you can find and and in which proteins you find. And then to see if those proteins are connected to disease associated with breast cancer. I mean, you could do a lot of really interesting things like horses hooves. So there are horses that have founder. Anthony Samsel identified glyphosate contamination in those hooves of these horses with founder. They, they have lots and lots of uh, collagen in the, in the horse's hoof. So that's a very heavily loaded glycine uh, containing protein. I talk about it in my book. Every third amino acid for long sequences is a glycine. GXY, 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 lots and lots of glycine in collagen. So if you take the horse's hoof of a horse who has founder and you know, maybe compare it to the horse's hoof of a horse that has you know, had an organic diet, basically get a good control and, and look at both of those and look for this heavy glyphosate signal in the, in the protein in the, in the horse's hoof using the same technique that these guys did. I think it would be really exciting. I think you could do it for lots of different situations, Alzheimer's disease, you know, post-mortem, get the, get the uh, amyloid beta plaque and see if there's glyphosate in there. And exactly which proteins, exactly where in those proteins, does that make sense in terms of that disease? There's a great deal of stuff that could be done uh, in identifying specific proteins where you have observed that it has substituted. So I think it's a wonderful technology these people have introduced. And I, I would love to see another chemist take it on. I don't have any laboratory. I don't have any, I don't have the ability to do that myself. Yeah, it seems like um, maybe... Monsanto and their political allies might be suppressing this research because once I read the book, I was surprised that there wasn't more active research in this area. Right. And in fact, I talked about the bluegill sunfish, and I should bring that one up too, because that's a Monsanto study, bluegill sunfish, and I talked about it in my book, um, exposed to radio labeled glyphosate. So then you can trace the radio label. You don't have to identify the molecule. They found it in the tissues and they found the radio label in the tissues. They measured for glyphosate and it came up very short. Only 20% of the radio label could be accounted for as glyphosate. Then they got the brilliant idea of adding enzymes that break down proteins into individual amino acids. 
when they did that, the yield increased to 70%. And they said perhaps it was incorporated into the protein. That's their words. And these are researchers for Monsanto back when they were going through the approval process. So that I think Monsanto people know that it's substituting for glycine and they're determined to suppress that information because they know that it's game over if it's if it becomes public knowledge. Right. And another thing that you point out that I was kind of horrified to learn was that not only is Roundup and its other um, analogs sprayed on crops as they're growing to kill the weeds that haven't been engineered to resist it, like um, the Roundup ready crops have been engineered. But once crops are harvested, they're heavily sprayed to force them to mature rapidly so that um, the harvest, say, of their seeds, like corn, wheat, et cetera, um, can be maximized. And so we're getting kind of a double dose in our diets if we're eating foods that have been exposed to the chemical. And, you know, sort of a corollary is that all of us are engaged in different kinds of protein synthesis at you know every moment in our lives, just depending on our activity level, our metabolic state, our disease level. And so you know that could explain why there's just this huge panoply of diseases exactly. that could be arising from, from the herbicide exposure. That's right. That's how you can explain how one chemical could cause so many diseases. Once you say it substitutes for glycine and proteins, you'd like, it's just incredible. And, and we're finding specific proteins that it suppresses experimentally, where I can tell you exactly where that glycine is that it's disrupting, because we have a lot of knowledge about proteins that have very essential glycine residues. If you change the glycine to something else, a protein's dead in the water and it can't do its job. You know, there's very big sensitivities to glycine substitution in certain proteins. And I talk about in my book, several examples. I'm still finding them today, new examples of proteins that I suspect are being affected badly by glyphosate. So it's really frightening to think about the consequences of that. And it's a slow kill. I mean, it slowly accumulates in your tissues. The more you are exposed, the higher the levels get in your tissues over time. Eventually something breaks big time and you get some awful disease like Alzheimer's or rheumatoid arthritis. You know, once there's a break point, it's really uh, very sad to think about the, um, you know, the health care costs in this country are skyrocketing and people are getting so sick and, and there's not uh, enough discussion around the question of why are we so sick, especially in the United States. You know, I feel that's yeah. uh, the fault of the government not to confront this problem to say we need to figure this out. Right. And so one one last thing in the few minutes that we have left, I, I and I know other people, especially in our listening audience, are always interested in the story of what brought you here. And you said that was autism. Can you give mm -hmm. us a little background into how you got interested in what you found out about autism? Yeah, it actually started a long time ago, 1980s, early 80s. I had a friend who had a young son who got a DPT shot, ran a high fever, had seizures a week later and was later diagnosed with severe autism. And that planted a seed in my mind to be interested in autism. And I tracked its rise in the first uh, decade of this century, 2000, 2000, up to around 2007, I was seeing it was going up. Levels were going up every year. The government would just announce that, and oh yes, it's higher now. And nobody seemed to be too worried about that. Most of the money was going towards genetics. And, and although there's a genetic predisposition that gives you greater, greater risk, it's not a genetic problem. It's an environmental problem. And I was determined to figure out what it was. And I started looking with the vaccines. And I think the vaccines are an important factor in autism, even though it's often denied. 
but I knew I didn't have the whole story. And it was just, you know, five years into the project, I happened to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber gave a presentation, two-hour presentation on glyphosate. I did not know the word when I walked in. At the end of that presentation, I became convinced that I had found my answer. And I never looked back. I basically dropped everything else and started reading everything I could about glyphosate. It turned out to be an extremely interesting molecule, an extremely interesting topic. And, you know, it took me, it was almost a decade uh, and, and two years of writing this book. I tried to make the book as simple as I could. The biology is hard, as you know. And so um, I worked hard to give it background, you know, help people with the biology to make it accessible. And I hope I achieved that goal to some extent. I realize not completely, <laughs> but. Yeah, it, it, you give a, a great introduction and then um, summary. Some of the biochemistry definitely gets technical. That's my, was my only complaint is, I wish there would have been figures, but I know how hard it is to get. Yeah, uh, I had figures, figures, and for some reason, the publisher wanted to leave them out. So. Oh, it's expensive. They don't want to put those in there. Mm, I see. <laughs> so I guess the one last mechanism of of um, glyphosate toxicity that I wanted you to to just chat about briefly, because it relates to this story of autism, is that, and again, I, something I hadn't realized, that it acts as what's called a chelator, which is a chemical yes. grabs positively or negatively charged things called ions in mm -hmm. um, in our blood or in our cells. And so it can radically increase the concentration and therefore the toxicity. So something like aluminum that's been mm -hmm. implicated in autism, you know, a low level could be magnified if that person has um, glyphosate in their tissues. Right, I, th I think the glyphosate is actually able to chelate aluminum in the gut. Um, and hide its plus three charge. And so that then allows the aluminum, the small molecule that contains gly two glyphosates attached to an aluminum molecule cancels out its positive charge and it can get past the gut barrier. It also, uh, by binding tightly to minerals that are essential like manganese and zinc and cobalt and iron, it binds very tightly to those. And it, that actually can prevent the gut microbes from getting access. So it's a combination of both deficiency and toxicity simultaneously. And I wrote a whole paper uh, together with colleagues on uh, manganese, just on manganese and the connection to, um, to to brain disease as a consequence of glyphosate messing up the uh, the transport and the delivery of manganese. Right. Yeah. There, and that's just one small sampling of the many stories um, that you have in your book. And so I will link to the book on our website in our show notes and um, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much for talking and Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. That was Dr. Stephanie Seneff talking with me about her newly published book, Toxic Legacy, in which she describes the range of toxicities due to the herbicide commonly called Roundup. Contrary to claims by the agricultural industry, she provides overwhelming evidence showing the potential for harm to our microbiome and our metabolism by the chemical. For more information, you can find links to her book and her work in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer, and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cullen. Additional music by Joe Jackson. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material from the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.